Hey guys, we've got a special sponsorship deal for this episode of Defen. It's from a company that is probably new to many of you, but they're called Paren Treats. Um, Paren Treats is a brand new breakfast product that provides balance and fun. This year, Paren Treats comes in two new flavors, Rainbow and Unicorn. Both Rainbow and Unicorn flavors are completely vegan, so Paren Treats can help you lose weight on your carbon footprint. And that's why Paren Treats is proud to be sponsoring Defen, the number one vegetarian closure podcast. You can check out Paren Treats online. They have two websites because, of course, they also need to maintain a balance. So you can find them at parinfo.open and paredit.closed for more information. Now, as a Defen listener, Paren Treats is offering a special deal. You can get six packs of Paren Treats completely free when you sign up for their free trial. Um, be sure to use the coupon code DEFEN2018 when you check out Paren Treats. Thanks once again to Paren Treats for making DEFEN possible. Welcome to Defen episode number 30 and this is the first episode of this year and uh, I think around 12 people around the world already know that we are actually trying to live stream this episode so we apologize for all the all the I don't know trying to set up the things uh, but the best part of this episode is that we have Zach Talman on the show hello Zach hey so welcome to the show oh uh, yeah thanks for having me Thank you. And, and of course, we have uh, Ray from Belgium uh, Just and, about, uh, at the beginning of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, he said he is having some uh, technology issues and uh, so we're going to ignore him every now and then. Yeah. So welcome to the show, Ray. How are you? When the, when the internet gets written in closure, we'll be all right. But for the moment, you know, we're operating <laughs> on a whole lot of shit, so we have to live with it. <laughs> yeah. So this is Vijay from Holland and um, Ray from Belgium and Zach from the US right now. Uh, yeah, Oakland, California. Cool. Okay. So, um, so there are, there are lots of topics that we want to cover today. Uh, first of all, um, the book that you're writing, Zach. Where is the inspiration, and uh, why are you writing a book? Because I have terrible judgment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So, um, the backstory on this book is that. Uh, you know, after my first full-time job writing Clojure, uh, I immediately became an experienced Clojure engineer relative to the people I worked with. And so a big part of my job became training other people and uh, trying to distill my sort of, you know, half-formed judgment of like, what is good Clojure, what is bad Clojure and explaining to people. And occasionally if I told them, you know, this is not a good approach, use this other one instead, they would ask me why. And I would struggle to answer. And so I wanted to try to kind of firm up my own understanding of it and kind of also maybe have a little bit more reach in terms of these explanations rather than just, you know, whoever I happened to be working next to that day. And so that was probably about five years ago uh, that I registered elementsofclosure.com. Uh, mm -hmm. I was in St. Louis for Strange Loop. And I was at a bar with uh, Chaz Emmerich and a few other people. And I said, there needs to be a drunken white for closure. And we raced each other to uh, register elements of closure.com on our phone. And I won. Uh, 
<laughs> and since then, um, I've been saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to write a book about closure one day. And I had a lot of false starts. And then eventually kind of the structure of the book became a little bit more obvious to me, like what, what I sort of felt it should be. And so I, I sat down and uh, wrote the first chapter on names um, in like a week uh, while I was on vacation about two years ago. And I put it up on LeanPub and uh, the response was uh, far better than I had sort of expected. And so I just kind of kept on going from there. And there have been people who paid me money two years ago who are still very patiently waiting for the book. Thank you, by the way. Yeah, I'm one and... of them, Zach. So you know, <laughs> come on. That's, Thank that's, you, why yeah. he's on the, that's why he's on the podcast, to ask you when are you going to finish the book. <laughs> and I mean, you know, obviously that's a, that's a hell of a long time for a book to be uh, sort of in progress, even though, you know, uh, during at least half that time, I haven't. I've like been working full time elsewhere, and I think the the reason for that, um, in addition to me just being a very slow writer, is that um, the scope has broadened quite a bit from what I thought it was going to be, because it turns out that trying to give a reasonable sort of proxy for you know my judgment requires articulating a lot of things that I didn't know how to articulate. And so there's just like a lot of reading and a lot of just kind of mulling over stuff in my head to be able to do more than, uh, I mean, because like the Strunk and White thing, like that's sort of where the name came from. And it's becoming an increasingly inaccurate misnomer, I think, because now, now I kind of joke that I should just call it what is software anyway, the book, because like it's <laughs> it gets much closer to sort of what is the underlying philosophy, right? I mean, names... Like you can give sort of hard and fast judgment about, you know, what sort of names to use in certain situations. But a lot of the time what you're trying to do is saying, you, the reader, have the domain knowledge that is required to make a good decision here. All I can do is provide you a framework to kind of plug your knowledge into and sort of weigh the various uh, considerations. And that's a lot harder than writing a style guide. Um, it's also, I think, much more useful than a style guide. Um, I, I certainly hope so at this point. But uh yeah, so I, I've just been really uh, struggling, I think, to write the book that I feel I would have want to have read, maybe a couple of years into writing Closure. And since I've been spending this much time, I, I kind of want that to count for something. And so I've been getting increasingly sort of ensconced on these increasingly kind of abstract questions about, you know, naming and abstraction and like all these other sorts of things. And so, you know, uh, beginning of 2017, I actually quit my job so that I could spend uh, some time working on the book and also working on uh, a separate project. And the book just like, I, th I thought it was going to be three or four months of my full-time attention. And it's just, it hasn't been that it's, it's, I've, you know, started reading books and finding that they didn't really quite answer my question. And so then I looked at their references and I read those books and I've been just doing this breadth first search through the literature <laughs> and, uh, you know, a year went by. <laughs> and so, um, again, uh, I have terrible judgment, uh, but it's getting very close to being done. So I'm, I'm about halfway through a draft of the final chapter. Uh, I'm yeah. giving a talk on it in, uh, New Orleans, a month from now, a little bit uh, less than a month from now. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm committed. I need to go and do this. Uh, the chapter probably won't be out before the talk, but I will write up the contents of the talk into the chapter soon thereafter. And then uh, 
I look forward to stepping away from the book for a while. Like it's going to be a, a first draft. There's going to need to be revisions. Mm. Everything I've written in this book has undergone uh, rewrites, but uh, I think it's time for me to just kind of focus on something else for a little bit. So I, once I have a first draft to, to give to people, I'm, I'm going to feel comfortable, I think, uh, not having any new updates for, you know, half a year or something like that. Maybe, maybe there's one question for you, Zach, actually, is, and I, I, you know, like you say, you, you close your programmer and all this kind of stuff. But I mean, I've, I've read half of the book and I'm skipping through the abstraction bit at the moment. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> um, I haven't got a, uh, a year to spend reading it. <laughs> well, I mean, I really, that's, that's hopefully not the thing. I mean, I, I really hope that it actually, I mean, I've, I've read books where someone has tried to prove to you how much they've read. And I find those incredibly obnoxious. And so, you know, my hope here is that, you know, the book is hopefully not going to be over 100, 120 pages. And it's dense, but it's meant to be extremely concise and, you know, hopefully is not totally unapplicable to what you're doing. And so if it feels like you've been reading for a year, I no, haven't I done haven't. my job, no, right? No, 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 no. Quite the opposite. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I think uh, I, I read the names bit and then I saw the second bit and I just haven't got around to it. It's in the queue. Mm -hmm. um, but the, I, I guess my question for you, because I started reading the abstraction bit uh, this afternoon. Uh, well, actually yesterday afternoon. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I was busy this <laughs> afternoon with something else. Um, so... Blah blah blah. My question really is: is why? Why do you think? I, I've talked. I've looked at the names and stuff. Why? Why do you think this is specific to closure? Because it seems like a lot of this stuff is quite general, actually. It is, and that's sort of why. Why do you kind of glue it into closure, or is it just a starting point for you? Well, I, again, I mean, the book is grown in scope since I named it and, you know, uh, let that be a lesson there, I guess. But, uh, right. <laughs> the, uh, the, the short, the short answer is that like, you know, I don't know what an elements of software book would look like because if there's not some sort of foundation there of a, I mean, you could do what Knuth did for art of computer programming and spend the first part of the book defining your own language and then sort of, you know, just kind of go from there. But I, I don't have 25 years. Um, to sure? go and, you know, do this. And, <laughs> um, I mean, I think that if I were trying to aim at a broader audience, um, a, there'd be fewer people who'd be willing to, uh, give it a shot. Like I, I think there are people in the closure community are uniquely willing to go and put up with my bullshit. Uh, <laughs> but also like, I don't know, like the, the choices that are made in closure, um, even though many of them are choices, which I've come to disagree with having, you know, spent two years looking at the, the language and the kind of decisions there. Um, it's a well understood common ground between, you know, me and the readers. And that means that I can, uh, I don't have to spend a bunch of time explaining stuff and then it, uh, exploring the consequences of what I've just explained. I can just kind of assume that people are coming in knowing what they know. And, uh, you know, maybe one day I will know how to write elements of software but I don't now and don't plan to try anytime soon. So, you know, uh, I've been trying to, you know, encourage people who don't know closure or, uh, know a little bit of closure, but don't, you know, use it full time or don't plan on sort of getting very deep into it and saying, you know, read it and let me know how it turns out. See if this actually, you know, helps you with software in general and not just with the, the closure language. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's, uh, 
the die is sort of cast here, right? Like I, I've yeah. made these choices. I, I'm aiming at a closure. There's a lot of, all the examples are in closure. And, uh, you know, if, if other people happen to read it and find it useful, I would be very happy with that outcome, but I, it's not the, the outcome that I'm sort of aiming for. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's okay. I mean, uh, it's just a general question. So, but because I, I was, I was thinking also that when I was reading it, looking back at it, because I, I, I reread the names part as well, um, was that it seemed to be aimed at a certain maturity of project. It wasn't just a kind of like a ten liner or a, a small library. It was about a kind of multi-year project or a big project let's say something which justified some effort to think about how you segregated your functions and your names and all these kind of things rather than just something which you could throw together could you is that right or uh <laughs> well i mean I, I guess saying you know if you're if you're using this now and you'll never use it again do whatever you know gets you to you know from a to b is a very short book and probably not a very helpful one right, right. so but I mean, also, a lot of code that we write is throwaway, not because we want it to be throwaway, but because it's too hard to make it something that can, you know, remain useful over time. I think that we're we're incredibly bad at doing that. And I mean, it's, it's a hard problem. So I don't mean to, you know, say that this is our fault for being, you know, crappy programmers. I just think that uh, we we have gotten very good in a lot of cases at writing sort of uh, throwaway code and sort of building stuff up from scratch because it's too hard to go and reach back into you know our Git history and like pull out code that is actually something that we can use in this context as opposed to just kind of taking the lessons we learned from that code and carrying that forward. What do you think the difference is there? I mean, because one of the things I thought about with functional programming was that maybe there would be more stuff that you could carry forward. Uh, a bit less less kind of context required, um, but I know I know from the book you talk more about that everything sits inside of a context, which yeah, of course it does. But but there's a sort of global context, and then there's a sort of you know a sort of narrowing of those contexts as you get down to your specific program. Right. I mean, so this is something that uh, I've actually so I've been doing a, a small edit to the the abstraction chapter and one of the things I talk about. So like the one of the the aesthetic of closure, right? The thing that we're sort of told is you have a bunch of these functions, they're sort of floating out there, and then you go and just kind of reach out and you pluck them and you put them next to each other and you compose them and then you let data flow through them, right? It's and easy. so you, you and it's easy, right? And and that's a that's a really compelling idea. Right, that we just have these like perfect functional like orbs floating up in the air, and we can just go and kind of pluck them and and use them however we want. I have a suspicion you're going to drop as drop these in a minute. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I think that the only way that you get that sort of uh, indirection, right, the, the sort of complete separation where like this orb can, is being used with this orb now, but can like you know we can totally rearrange the whole system, is if no one cheats, no one kind of looks under the covers, no one goes and presumes that like, you know, they're being used with this other thing over here. And I think that, you know, uh, cheating is the only thing that makes sense in some of these cases, right? Because a lot of functions we write will never be used with outside of the sort of context that they're in. And we should be able to rely on on the details of how we're going through that. You know, that sort of coupling is not inherently bad that coupling is what makes it like possible for us to go and you know build something and you know the example i give of this is uh the uh the mitochondrion 
So like this is the little organelle that sits inside, you know, each cell, it goes and does cellular respiration. It's, you know, the powerhouse of the cell. And uh, it has all the markings of an independent organism, right? It has its own DNA. It has its own cell walls. But, you know, two billion years ago, it got absorbed into, you know, the eukaryotic cell and it hasn't left since. And so it can't exist outside of that context anymore, right? And it's been shaped to the needs of that context because it produces a lot more ATP than it itself needs. And if you were to go and like, you know, cut it out and drop it in, you know, some sort of other environment, it would die. And so even though we have these things that, you know, are functional, right? They, they are uh, referentially transparent, uh, they have all this kind of, um, these qualities that make us think that they should be able to, you know, be used anywhere we want to use them. But in practice, I think that unless we have a lot of discipline in terms of how, uh, much we depend on the nature of the implementation, then that's not true, right? It's sort of false indirection. Hmm. And I think that that's extremely true in closure as it is anywhere else, which is why, you know, I mean, uh, if you contrast how the closure ecosystem looks to say like the node ecosystem, like we don't have one function libraries, right? We don't have a left pad library. We don't <laughs> have yet. these other sorts of things. And I mean, nor should we, I think, because uh, if you have to go and kind of understand the, the API of a given function, like what shape of data does it expect? What kind of data does it return? That's a lot of work to just get one function's worth of utility, right? right. If you have a whole library like the surface area of the API is relatively small to all the stuff underneath, and that actually makes it worth learning. And that means that within that library, people can go and make these things that are more coupled and are you know, only sort of purpose-built for the, the purpose of the library because people aren't going and reaching in and like pulling out one function and saying, you know, oh, I just needed this, thanks, right? Um, with that said, I think that in some libraries that I've written, I, I've taken pains to say that they have MIT licensing because that yeah. allows you to go and just copy paste code as long as you put like a little inline attribution there. Because in some cases there are things that are generally useful. And in some cases you don't want to go and just create like your own little catch-all utility library that has a bunch of functions that you think might be useful to someone someday. Uh, but like at least they can if they ever want to. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully I... I well, kinda... I'm, I'm really, I'm wondering... Like you, you're using this um, analogy between, I don't know, biochemistry and then computing. Mm -hmm. uh, do, you, do you think that is going to be like easy to relate to, or, or is it from your background, or certainly not my background? Biochemistry? Um, okay. So I think that uh, I mean I've had to cast a pretty wide net in terms of the reading that I've been doing because there's basically one paper and the entirety of computer science that purports to say what abstraction is, and it's not a particularly great definition. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, if you want to do that, there, there's a talk that I gave, which I kind of go into more detail. It's, it's a paper called uh, Proof of Correctness of Data Representations. Um, and the short answer is that like I could go and I could like come up with an example, right? So mm -hmm. here I can come up with a, some sort of test application and I could go and craft a whole bunch of examples where I say, I'm going to, you know, define what the customer is and what the data model is and all this other sort of stuff. And then I can go and sort of play around with a bunch of examples. But I think that that, that runs the risk of overfitting the examples to a very particular domain. Mm -hmm. um, and the nice thing about the physical world is that we all kind of understand it already. Yeah. And so I can draw analogies there which are imperfect because the physical world doesn't work exactly the way that software does. But 
it's close enough, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who have gone real hard on the whole, like software should be more like biology thing. You know, anyone can go and watch uh, Alan Kay's talks from the last 20 years because yeah. there's basically like a talk and a half's worth of material between them. And he talks about this a lot because he has a biochemistry background. Yeah. And I'm not as convinced of the utility of that analogy as he is, but I do think that the mitochondrian example is a good one because it talks about how something which purports to be independent isn't. Right. Yeah. And I think that, that that's a that's a very natural sort of thing. And so I think that you have to be careful about drawing analogies, but I think that there are very powerful analogies that require a lot less uh, build up to kind of have the necessary impact. And that's that's sort of what I that's why I use that particular one. So to, to look at other languages um, for a moment, you know, especially functional languages, a lot of them talk about abstractions as part of the language. So you have abstract data types, you have higher kind of types, you have existential types and all these kind of things. And I noticed that you kind of, you, you dodged a lot of that monadic type discussion. You don't want to get into that stuff, which is fine. I mean, you know, who does, you know, <laughs> but, but, but they're claiming all of this abstraction um, in their type systems. Um, mm -hmm. Is that something that you did think about challenging or because I know that Rich did it in one of his talks and so yeah, I, I mean, so I, I did think about whether or not I wanted to try to do this and, and I realized that um, after kind of ha getting halfway through the chapter, I realized that what I was focusing on. So the, the paper I mentioned proof of correctness of data representations is like one of the earliest things about how do we prove that a data structure is correct, right? Uh, this is written back in like 1972. And there's been a whole lot of academic focus on this sort of question of how do we construct proofs, right? That's kind mm. of the artifact that every paper needs to have for it to get published. Like even in cases where it's just talking about an interesting engineering result, people still need to have like some lemmas in there to, to get it past the, the reviewers. And that's fine. Um, but that's sort of a cultural thing rather than uh, something that like I think relates very much to what is actually useful in software. And, and the thing that I advocate in the book is that people should stop talking about software being correct. They should start talking about it being um, self-consistent, where self-consistent means, you know, if we look at the implementation in terms of itself, like as sort of a self-enclosed little bubble, it does what it's supposed to do, right? But that's a completely separate thing than is this abstraction, is this software useful given what it is that I'm trying to accomplish? And since that has to take into account the world and the world is not reducible down to a finite number of elements that we can go and construct a proof around, all of these tools that we have, all these higher kind of types, all these other sorts of uh, fun little toys that academia has given us don't help us, right? I mean, and I don't mean to go and say that writing self-consistent software is easy or a solved problem or like not something that type systems can really give us a lot of leverage on, I just don't think that it is actually the hardest problem. The hardest problem is dealing with the world and the environment that our software sits in and making sure that our software continues to adapt as the environment changes around it. Isn't this something similar to, I remember reading an article by, uh, I think probably one of the person who, who wrote uh, IO or that, that one of those uh, languages, that um, his uh, idea, I'm sorry, I'm not really good with the names, I'll look it up later and then put a link to there. So that, you know, the I think it's it's in uh, it's similar to what you're explaining that the types are only useful within the system, but at the surface area, you know, you need to have dynamicity or dynamism to to deal with the external world. Is is it something similar that, that I, you're? I, I think that that's. I mean, that's part of it, certainly. I mean, I, I 
I think that this is orthogonal to the question of dynamic versus static types. Um, I do think that having some dynamism at the edge of your system is helpful because the world doesn't, I mean, the world doesn't have schemas, right? And yeah. so at the end of the day, we can go and we can have something that says, okay, you give me a bunch of bytes and I'm either going to say this fits exactly what I need it to be or no, and then tell them to like go away because they gave you malformed bytes. And that, that's okay because if the computer is talking to another computer, they're both sort of rigid enough in that way that that, that works most of the time. What do you think about these companies like Yelp and all these other things, which are essentially trying to force a schema onto the world? You know, because they're trying to do that. I mean, they're, all of these like uh, Unix utilities that are, you know, essentially becoming startups, they, 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 they basically say, okay, well, the schema is location, rating, and that's it, you know, and 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 I guess, of course, maybe, I'm, maybe uh, you're going to say the same as I'm thinking now, which is, well, they start like that, but actually they evolve into something much bigger and the schema becomes very baggy and horrible. But it, but that's where it starts for sure, you know. Well, I mean, I, I don't know that that's what I would say, actually. I mean, I should say that, uh, sorry, I, I cut you off there. Was there anything else you wanted to say? Nothing useful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll uh, cut him off completely from the, from so, the episode so, anyway. So. Um, <laughs> I did actually work for one of those companies that tried to, to have a schema for the world. It was called Factual. Oh, yeah. And it was actually an interesting one because in addition to having some well-formed data, it also tried to be sort of a foreign key for all these systems. So it had an ID that it would map onto a Yelp ID and onto a uh, Foursquare ID and onto, I think, like 30 different sort of services, all of which uh, try to capture facets, right? Mm. Um, and I mean, Yelp is an interesting case, right? Because like the only things that we can... Uh, measure, right? The only things that allow for us to kind of build these indices are things that are either enumerations or scalar values, right? And so Yelp yep. goes and says, okay, you have a rating and I'm going to give you an average of the rating, or I'm going to do some sort of weird uh, kind of slightly sketchy elision of good and bad reviews based on like possibly them trying to scam the business owners into paying them protection money. But like, you know, that whole thing <laughs> aside, uh, they also have all these reviews, right? Which are just bags of words, yeah. And uh, like, so someone could say, oh, three stars because the, the service was slow or, you know, three stars because whatever. And I mean, you know, I live in the Bay Area where like the, apparently the fussiest people in the world live because <laughs> they'll go and give them like two stars because the decor wasn't quite up to, you know, what they would expect given the price scale or something like that. And so, I mean, and, and it's ridiculous and you can do sentiment analysis and other sorts of things. And if you look at, you know, Amazon's things, the reviews, they'll go and pull out common phrases and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, that's just, it's a much more amorphous kind of data that doesn't lend itself to this kind of uh, quantification that computers kind of need to be able to, to deal with the data. And I think that that's a, that's a recurring and sort of unsolvable problem, right? Because there is this amorphous data and we're trying to make it sort of very uh, well-defined so that we can actually do stuff with it. Yeah. Uh, the the other kind of thing that I'll, I'll do, and this is a longer answer, and um, I should ask just like, do we have some sort of time limit here? Because I, I've, you know, I've been like reading and thinking and writing about this like for a year, so I can talk We've got hours. for a while. We've got hours. I mean, you know, uh, we, we, okay. it's eight o'clock now, 8.40. We can go for another hour and a half. I mean, I was actually thinking the other way around, you know, that you might be heading out the door, but if you've got time, keep no, going. No, no, not right? at all. It's it's uh, it's fairly early here. So um, in we, any we case. We've got nothing, nothing else to do. So <laughs> okay. uh, we, we are happy to hear uh, you know, your thoughts. 
So uh, there's a book that I, I've referenced in a couple of talks and uh, that I think is a really great book called Seeing Like a State, which is uh, the subtitle is, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but like how uh, projects to improve humanity have failed. Um, and basically it gives a bunch of histories of cases where the government has looked at its citizenry and said, I don't really understand what the hell you guys are doing, so I can't really help you. So I'm going to go and create a model for how you guys live your life so I can start to kind of get traction on this. And the problem with this is that since the government, uh, the, the sort of system that it creates is not optional, even if the, the model that it came up with is completely ridiculous, people don't get to opt out of it. And so they have to kind of conform to the model uh, with, and so the, the government kind of destroys the structure that was already there without even realizing that it ever was there because they, they're just like, oh, look at all these people living according to the rules I set up, right? <laughs> and um, so the, the author, James Scott, he calls this uh, the government trying to uh, create legibility, right? To, to create a legible uh, sort of environment so that it can go and kind of analyze it and you know, respond to it and all this other sort of stuff. Um, and for him, legibility is this thing, which is this kind of pipe dream that, you know, they should just go and like not try because they end up causing more harm than good. Uh, there's another book, which I don't know if this is what, uh, James Scott was sort of referring to, but it's a much earlier book called the image of the city by Kevin Lynch. And in it, he interviews a bunch of people who have been living in some city for, you know, a decade or more and ask them to describe how do they get from one place to another place? Like what are the sort of landmarks that they pass? Like uh, what, what sort of, you know, their mental series of steps here without them actually doing it, right? They're just sitting in a room and narrating how they would get there. And using this, using uh, dozens of these sorts of interviews, he builds a little map of what are the common landmarks? What are the, the pieces of the city that sort of stand out for people that people sort of navigate and triangulate by? And, you know, some cities like Boston have very uh, well-defined landmarks and some cities like uh, LA or Jersey City are completely ridiculously like uh, landmarkless, right? Mm -hmm. And so people say, like, oh, I just turned left at like 111th Street. Like mm -hmm. there, there's not, there's, there's nothing there that kind of helps them navigate this. And so for Lynch, the idea of legibility is very important because it's what allows people to go and traverse a space, right? Something which is legible is a well-designed city. And it's interesting. And I've, I've had a couple of conversations with people because um, uh, one of the most common examples of a bad bit of city planning is this place called Brasilia, which was Brazil's sort of capital in 1965. Yeah. And they built from nothing. And uh, it was this planned city and they built these huge, huge super blocks where everyone was supposed to live. And they built the government buildings in the middle and they had these huge freeways connecting them. And like just from the get go, uh, when all the people, all the, the sort of the laborers that came out to build the city were done, uh, there's nowhere for them to live because the plan hadn't anticipated they would want to stick around. And so they kind of lived out on the outskirts of the city where there's no utilities, no, like no affordances for them at all. Right. Because the city just had this kind of plan and the plan was what it was going to be. And it's what the city still is. Right. It hasn't really changed much. And so people didn't find it a very pleasant place to live because the city kind of imposed upon them its sense of how their lives should be. Um, around the same time, though, there's another city that was built uh, according to the same kind of philosophy, uh, which is uh, Chandigarh in India. Yeah. And 
Uh, Chandigarh is interesting because I've talked to a lot of people in India. I was actually just in India last week uh, for for enclosure. And they like Chandigarh. Chandigarh has like, you know, it's sort of like central area. It's very well planned. There are rectilinear streets. There are, you know, uh, well-defined uh, street addresses. Uh, like it's it's a, a very uh, respected kind of in, a bit of city planning. Actually, but, I lived there for uh, almost one and a half year in Chandigarh. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. it's it's something where like I, I haven't heard anyone say a bad word about it, right? Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, every, everybody loves loves this place because of the planning. That, that That's what... That, right. that sets it apart from other cities in India, which are much more organic. Right, right. Know, oh, yeah. That's that's the kind word. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, but it's it's interesting because uh, I've actually not been to Chandigarh and I, I would love to go because I want to kind of see this for myself. But if I were to try to articulate what is the difference between these things is that Chandigarh's boundaries are not uh, set by the original plan, right? The city has grown yeah, around yeah. it. Yeah. And so what it what the, the original plan was is it was a seed not mm. an absolute set of boundaries that people sort of had to live their lives within. And I think that that's a really important difference. Um, where structure is important, we impose structure with our software because that's what the computers need us to do to, to make these problems tractable, but it's also what we need to do to make them fit in our head, right? We have to impose some structure. We can't just say, oh, you know, whatever. Give us, yeah. give us some data. We'll figure it out, right? Yeah. Like we, we, even in dynamic systems, we do have expectations. We don't just say, give us some bytes. Right, we we expect yeah. it to actually be a particular data type with certain invariants, and will fail at runtime if those invariants don't hold true. And so I think that the the real question is, um, do those invariants are they at the root of the system, right? Um, and and does that mean that the entire thing has to be kind of thrown away if those invariants ever change, or do we have invariants which kind of exist in parts of our system and we have sort of more flexible glue that, that fits those different rigid pieces together so that we can go and we can replace pieces of our system, but we don't ever have to throw the entire thing away. But do you think the that, that closure hits the sweet spot between not having too much structure versus um, at least we have some structure, it's not going to be just bytes everywhere, uh, compared to the you know very strict uh, rigid type systems that are going to tell you that okay this is this is the invariant covariant whatever mm -hmm. at, at at a very very um, detailed level description of what what I mean by a type uh, in in Haskell or in other statically typed languages so so where, where do you think the I mean is closure is one of those languages or do you think there are some other languages that that you think are are going to be much more in a sweeter spot like this. You know, I, it's a really interesting question. I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the the space here and this sort of quote unquote sweet spot is not very well defined. I think that the mm. the major contribution and closure is uh, immutability outside of a well defined type system. Yeah. I, like that that doesn't really exist anywhere else. And I think mm. that that's a it's an enormous step forward uh, in terms of having dynamic languages. I will say though that a lot of the code that I write. Um, is actually pretty well defined, isn't changing very rapidly. And the fact that, you know, I can tell closure something's true, but it still like discovers and rediscovers it at runtime over and over again is slightly yeah. maddening to me. And so, you know, I do end up going and like going down into Java because Java, hmm. while no one's favorite language, um, is yeah. a really good way of going and saying like, this is just what it is, right? And and that allows you to kind of be much more rigid about this. And so the the way that I've come to think about closure, and this is very informed by the sort of systems that I built with it, is that it is the flexible glue in between these other pieces. 
And the other pieces can be written in Clojure, but often they're like Java libraries, right? Yeah, yeah. They're just big old chunks of code that we kind of like pull up. And what we're doing is we're writing the thing that connects these different pieces or connects these pieces to the world. Hmm. And I think it's it's exceptional at that. Um, but the the sort of purest idea that we need to go and like write everything in Clojure, you know, at all levels of the system makes very little sense to me because I think that it's good as a host language hmm. um, or, or rather as a hosted language and, yeah. uh, you know, is able to, to sit atop these pre-existing chunks of complex functionality without having to go and actually like, you know, uh, do everything from scratch. I have a I have a question based on what what you're talking about. Uh, I think a couple of minutes ago that there there are some things in enclosure that obviously the you know you're explaining the closures uh, one of the strengths that is being a hosted language that that's one of the interesting things that that closure um, well that the power of closure comes from and you said there are some things that you don't agree with within closure <laughs> so can can you can you give us some ideas about which ones or which which concepts that you don't think are are, are not uh, that useful or, or why don't you agree with them? Uh, I mean, I don't think that there are any large scale things. I mean, there are certainly parts of the language that I don't think are useful. Hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the fact that, you know, you can't just start ripping starts things out of closure because someone somewhere uses them and you can't just go and say, oh, well, it turns out that, you know, STM wasn't nearly as game changing as we thought it was yeah. like, you know, to the trash heap with it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, as simplifying as that would be, uh, hmm. So a lot of the choices that I kind of take issue with actually mostly circle around how uh, nil is handled in the language. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, my, my favorite and like most inexplicable thing is that uh, the the git method yeah. has a check at the the sort of top of it, which says, is this you know an associative data structure? If not, git for this git for the number one will always return nil. Mm. And you know, the problem with nil enclosure is that, you know, nil is a valid anything. And so it's going to go and cascade halfway across your code base before something somebody does something that you can't do to nil, and then it throws mm. an exception, and then you have to go and walk the entire thing back and figure out, like, where did this nil come from, right? Mm. And the fact that git will return nil for anything means that, like, let's say you have some sort of arrow expression where you're doing, like, a chain of, of accessors, and you forget to actually put the uh, data structure at the front. Yeah, yeah. Um, then you'll it'll do a you know lookup of a keyword on a keyword, and rather mm -hmm. than saying you know very reasonably, hey, that doesn't make any sense. It's just like all right, no, you know whatever, and you know <laughs> we're we're kind of off to the races there. And I think that there's a lot of choices there that are weird. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for instance, uh, calling nth like nil is a, an empty data structure, but calling uh, nth on nil will return nil. Yeah. Uh, even if you say, oh yeah, what's, what's the millionth element of nil? And it's like, oh, it's nil, <laughs> you know, and it's like, that's not helpful. Right. But what, um, what do you think is the right behavior there then? I mean, should, should it be like, uh, well, I mean, in the case of, and then throw an exception or, well, or? no, I mean, I, I would think that, and yeah. uh, if we were going to say, if we're going to say that nil is an empty collection and it's a little yeah. bit, uh, flexible as to what that collection is, if you say, you know, nth is, uh, an, uh, an empty collection, then saying, you know, what's the first element of an empty collection should throw an index out of bounds exception, right? It yeah, should. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I think that there's a, like, this is kind of an interesting question because I've been actually putting off writing the nil part of the book for a while because I've been, I've been trying to figure out what is it I'm actually trying to say is like the right thing to do here. Mm -hmm. And in the, the idioms part of the book, I say, you know, 
I'm trying to be very uh, descriptive rather than prescriptive in terms of the practices. I'm saying like, just here's what the, here's what we do in the language. You might not like it, but like, you know, doing it this way is going to make it easy for other people to understand. Hmm. And um, the, the problem with the nil thing is that a lot of people will go and put this when X check at the top of their function such that like, if it's nil, then I'll just return nil and short circuit. And I think that that's a, in, on reflection is a terrible idiom. Yeah. Because it just means that like nil yields nil yields nil. And like, you know, then you have to go and kind of figure out what's going on. And so mm. I think that you have to be very clear as to what nil represents the absence of. And if mm. you're able to say like, so, so nil is the absence of a map, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that should, you shouldn't allow that to, to nil to become the absence of some other data structure further down the line, because now it's completely ambiguous as to what this thing represents the absence of. And so mm. that's something that I've been, thinking about for a while. Um, that's, that's just an example, but I think that, um, that's, that's, a you know, something that is very easy to sort of Monday morning quarterback about. Right. And I, I don't mean to go and say, oh man, that rich Hickey, he really doesn't know how to design a language, does he? But it's, uh, yeah. it's still, I think, uh, we don't talk about this very much and, you know, for good reason, because it's kind of a distraction from getting stuff done. But I, I think yeah. that, um, this podcast is a distraction from getting stuff done, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then I, I, I'm I'm in good company yeah. here, but it's it's. <laughs> uh, this, this is our way of not getting thing anything done. <laughs> sitting here, but yeah, but I mean, I think that like there, there's a lot of these little sorts of things there. Can and, I just talk about that um, nil thing a little bit more? One of the things that yeah. uh, that some people say is like if you use like the reduce function or whatever, you know, that that there's that there's some sort of identity function or some sort of canonical value for everything mm -hmm. so so nil does not matter it shouldn't it should never be anywhere because you you kind of always know something about what's missing or do you see what i mean i mean this is the yeah. argument that comes up so how do you i mean we are what we are as far as nil is concerned you know it's floating around there but in mm -hmm. theory in principle you should be able to say okay well you know, if you're if you haven't given me something, well, I can give you something back, which is you know zero, or an empty list, or whatever. You know, some kind of canonical starting point. I mean, I think that's true. Uh, though, I mean, I don't know. Like, it, it's something where you know, if I'm going and I'm saying I want to, so so take like the update function. It is convenient for us to be able to call update on a map which doesn't have a key and to take nil as an indication that the key wasn't there, right? And of course it's a little bit overloaded because maybe it also means that there actually was a value there and it just happens to be nil. But like that's a useful compression of the code as long as we're willing to just kind of agree that like in this context, nil means this, right? And the problem is that there are a lot of different contexts where nil means a lot of different things. And if we could keep that all very straight in our head, then everything would be fine, but we can't and so problems arise. And so I don't like certainly like for instance, Git could require that you have a not found uh, argument to it, right? Uh, and it just always requires you to tell you what this is. And so maybe you could say, oh, it's it's still nil, but you have to be explicit about that at least, right? Mm. Uh, but that makes your code a little bit more verbose. It makes it a little bit noisier because you have like all these sorts of values there. And I think that concision, uh, rightfully or wrongfully, is a big part uh, of what went into the sort of design ethos of closure, hmm. like just having fewer uh, like things 
in the in the sort of AST to specify mm-hmm. a particular problem. And if that comes uh, at the expense of some ambiguity, then that's a that's a price worth paying. And I don't think that I can speak as to whether or not that's true. Uh, but I, I do think that that's very much part of the design ethos. And so like, you have to just kind of take it as it is. And, and going back to the STM uh, things, why, why do you think, because I, I remember when, when Clojure 1, 1.0 was released and, and of course, until almost until 1.3 or something, th- this was one of the biggest topics in, in every book. And this was one of the things that you talk about. Uh, but, but obviously hindsight, you know, uh, that gives us better picture. So why do you think STM uh, didn't get the level of or, or didn't live up to the reputation in terms of adoption? So actually, do you talk about this in the book? Um, so, no. you know, spoiler <laughs> so alert go and for buy the book. Who, Obviously, you know, yeah, check. Come on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to start reading from my book. No. Uh, so um, for, for, for answer for this question, go and yeah. buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little DLC for your podcast. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the short answer is that, um, I mean, so atoms didn't exist in Clojure initially. Um, I forget when they were added. I think it was before 1.0, but they weren't like initially part of it. And they were kind of just like a, an STM light. And it turns out that STM light is all we really need. Um, yeah. And because the cost of using an atom is that uh, you have less granularity in terms of the state containers. And also you have less throughput because you have to retry more often because there's sort of a little bit more contention on those pieces. But it's atoms are still fast enough because we're not doing huge amounts of like uh, logic inside these little update functions. Mm. And I talk about this a little bit in the book where I, I analyze it as, as sort of a queuing theory problem where I say, you know, if we, if we assume that, you know, we have a millisecond update function for our thing uh, or no, I think it was a microsecond update because it's like adding some stuff or whatever. Um, it requires something like 600,000 updates per second before it actually uh, starts to contend enough to give you 50% overhead, like half the time you're, you're having to do a, a retry. Yeah. And we're not writing systems that have that much contention. And I think that the secondary thing, which, um, you know, again, you can say in hindsight that this, this was predictable, is that if we did have that sort of system, we're not scaling at the level of a single big machine with a lot of threads. We're scaling with a bunch of different processes that are all talking to a database. And databases have well-defined transactional semantics, and that's where those transactional semantics have the most value. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's, that's why it's not very useful, is that like it, it's basically just a slightly faster and much more complicated version of atoms, and we, we just don't need to, to deal with that complexity. It doesn't really give mm-hmm. us very much. The other thing that's, uh, I mean, again, maybe it's when we, just to change gear a little bit in terms of the language, um, is there was a significant complexity brought around with reducers. Um, is that, I, I don't think you talk about that in the book, <laughs> but maybe you should do in the next chapter. I don't chapter. talk about reducers at all. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, for better or for worse, uh, since I first conceived of this book back in 2012, there's been very little that's been added to the language, which um, I think has changed how people use Clojure. Uh, spec has a chance of changing it, um, but like you know, going down the list, there's been uh, core logic, core typed. There's been reducers. There's been transducers. Uh, there's been core async, which has changed some stuff, but I think that it's almost been uh, exclusively on the front end. I don't think that people use it particularly. Uh, 
much in backend systems and where they do use it, it's not actually because they need to be using it. Um, and so all these different pieces, like they're fine. And I'm not, uh, I, I think that the stability that we have is not something to kind of, you know, sniff at, but there just hasn't been this much stuff. And like reducers, thankfully, just kind of exist in like a little namespace. Like they've, they've made the uh, implementation of the underlying data structures more complicated. And, you know, as someone who's written alternative data structures, they've made my life a little bit harder, but they, they don't really change very much. I think transducers have made things more complicated because now when people make an errority mistake, it like yields this thing that's going to create this ridiculously yeah. opaque error. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to why that happened. In fact, as a an author of an alternative, like a stream library, um, having transducers save me from having to go and write a, a variant of every single closure core sequence function. So like, yay, transducers. But uh, it's, I don't think that it's changed how people approach the language. And in as much as I'm trying to, again, be more descriptive than prescriptive, um, I, I feel pretty comfortable just ignoring that. The reason I mentioned, actually, I meant to say transducers, not reducers, um, because I feel like the one of the things, if we think about what 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 is like interesting about functional programming is laziness, and transducers flip that. So, don't you think that's a big change? That you know, actually, you, all of the kind of the way that you process data suddenly has to be eager. You have to think about that. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, for a couple of reasons, one of which is that I talked to Rich about this and he said, so, I mean, I don't think he's gone on the record, but he said, if he had thought of transducers earlier, he would have made laziness uh, much less of a default option in the language. Right. Um, because you need to have some sort of way to compose stuff where you're not doing like n many passes over the collection each time that you want to like do a series of operations. That doesn't work. That's a non-starter. And so laziness is an obvious way to do that. But uh, it, it brings a lot of stuff along with it. And this is actually something that I'm talking about in the chapter I'm currently writing, which is on composition. And one of the things I kind of talk about is I say that, you know, there's this thing that I'm calling a process, which is a sequential set of operations where you're either pulling data in from outside the process, transforming the data that's within the process, or pushing data outside the process. And so this could be a thread. Typically, it's a thread. Uh, this could be like one of the old Unix processes. This could also be like a chain of callbacks. This could be like a core async uh, go routine. There are a lot of things that sort of have these properties, but like for the purpose of just thinking about um, a thread uh, in the most common case, uh, you want to be pretty clear about what the different steps are in your code. You want to be able to say, okay, this code is pulling stuff in, right? Because mm -hmm. this is this is reliance on some other thing which is outside of my process, as opposed to this is something which is going and just transforming data that I already have. And lazy sequences conflate those quite a lot because when I give you a lazy sequence, it might be a fully realized in-memory data structure that I just mapped over. And so now it's a lazy view into that. Or it might be something which is actually like reading from a file or reading from the network or something like that. And I think that that actually is something which, again, this is one of the few cases where I'm advocating for a different style of programming than people typically do in Clojure, which is to say that you you want to have something be um, you want to distinguish very uh, clearly between things which are operations that are reading from somewhere else and operations which are just transforming data that you already have. Hmm. And the interesting thing about transducers in that context is 
like there are a couple things that you can't do with transducers. You can't do um, sort uh, because sort requires you to go and, and like hold the entire thing in memory. And I think that like, if you kind of consider this in the case of lazy sequence, we can call sort on a lazy sequence. And what that does is it goes and realizes the entire thing and then copies it into an array and then calls like Java's array.sort on it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's okay if you already have the data in memory because presumably if you can fit one, you can fit two of them. But if it's a infinite sequence, calling sort on it is you know going to cause a lot of issues. And um, that's one of those sorts of cases where it gets kind of complicated. And I think it's worth looking at how uh, the GNU sort uh, thing works because what it does is it goes and pulls in pieces, like chunks of the data, and then it sorts those in place and then it spills it to disk. And then it keeps on doing that until it's exhausted all the incoming stuff. And then it does like a little merge sort of all the chunks that it spilled over to disk. And of course, if it, if it isn't too big, then it will never do that. It'll just keep it in memory. But this is something that is allow, able to deal with much larger uh, file sizes than it might otherwise have to. And in part, that's an artifact of the fact that it was like written for the PDP-11 or whatever. But it's, you know, this is a very clear separation between the act of reading in and then the act of sorting, right? So there's something which is going and pulling in only a bit of data and then calling sort on that and then pushing that out. And that's a much more sort of regimented approach to this. And in some cases we can say, okay, well, you know, I know exactly what the data is that I'm sorting. It's just like a little config file or something like that. I can go and I can, you know, read it from disk lazily and sort it, no big deal. But that means that we can't, like this gets back to the whole question of reusability, right? Now we have this sort of assumption baked into our code that, you know, this works on any lazy sequence except the ones that are too big, uh, you know, please don't do that. And that's kind of a um, very fragile thing. And I think that being more deliberate about that and thinking more carefully about, you know, when we're uh, dealing with realized versus unrealized data would be a helpful bit of uh, discipline to have. Yeah. So I was just wondering what, so you, you built this, uh, no, we would like to talk about the, the project that you're working on from your sabbatical. So can you give us some idea about what, what you're working on and what is it about? Yeah. Um, keep in mind that I haven't really perfected the elevator pitch for this, so it's it's, <laughs> it's more okay. Of a, we have we have one and a half hours. Yeah, so. it's, it's, think of it as a very long escalator pitch. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I hate escalator pitches, mate. I mean, we had an escalator guy recently. You know, I don't think that's working out. It's not a good model. You know, <laughs> maybe one of those those really long uh, like airport like the, the yeah, little moving yeah. sidewalk things. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, like just a very long terminal. So. Uh, <laughs> So basically, I want to I want to write a tool for what I uh, kind of am tempted to call exploratory data processing, um, and there are tools we use for this sort of thing. Where it's like we don't. It's not that we know how we want to get between A and B. It's that we're looking for a path between these things, right? And a lot of like the the tools we use to write code presume that we kind of know where we're going and how we want to get there. Yeah. But I think that most of the time that we're writing code, that's not true. And in fact, we would benefit from having tools that are more focused on that exploratory phase. And we do have some tools that, that sort of fit this, right? We have the shell. The shell has these sorts of things we can pipe together. Uh, we have the REPL. The REPL is an excellent tool for trying to figure out like, you know, how do we get data from, you know, this shape to the other. Um, and then we have stuff like Python notebooks, which are for data analysis, which is a sort of subset of data processing where the end result is meant to be something that is consumable by people. Like we can kind of, you know, uh, it's either a small num set of numbers or some sort of picture or something that we're, we're good at understanding. Hmm. And 
Uh, the problem with all of these things is that the exp the exploration process is captured as a sort of linear set of things that we typed into the computer, right? That's what happens when you type history at the bash prompt. It's like, here's all the things you typed. Uh, the problem is that the exploration process is not linear, it's branchy, right? We're, we're trying a bunch of stuff and we're backtracking, we're trying a different thing. And that narrative, that sort of structure of that branchiness is in our head, like, you know, for up to an hour after we did it. But like after that, it's gone, which is why, like, I know people who have the last five years of their bash history, like sitting in a file somewhere, but it's like kind of useless. <laughs> yeah, to them. You don't know which one. Yeah, exactly. Or like, yeah. How, like, how do these things relate to each other? Like, oh, was this was this like thing where I write to this file? Was that necessary for this other thing to work? I don't after know. This one, yeah. And yeah. like, if you have this sort of discipline of making all of your bash things one liners where you're just going mm -hmm. and like building up this ever longer sort of concatenation, then that kind of works. But like, that's also not great. Right. And yeah. so, uh, the, the having sort of said all that, kind of what I want is uh, Git for REPLs. I want something that kind of captures the branchiness of this exploration such that if you try 100 things and the right answer ends up being four things, you shouldn't have a big list of 100 things. You should have four things in front of you and then everything else off to the side, right? There should be this sort of daggy topology yeah. to this that you can go and you can kind of, you know, Concaten like compose onto, you should be able to go and sort of pull stuff to in, and you should be able to, most importantly, uh, search through it. Mm. Such that, you know, now this is actually, I think, a much more useful kind of representation of the history of your exploration. And even like, you know, a year, five years later, you can go and look at it and kind of get a sense of what it was you were doing, right? Mm. And I think that this, this gets to uh, something that I was sort of alluding to earlier, which is we don't build stuff to be reused very often. We build, we just build stuff like that is sort of one-off throwaway stuff. Because if you go and write this little crappy script that you know parses a log file and gives you some statistics about it, uh, going and parameterizing that and writing uh, like documentation and all this other sort of stuff, it takes at least as much time as writing the script did. And you know we almost always, I think, or at least I almost always opt for just throwing it away and writing it again six months later when I need it. Yeah. And so the net effect of that is that, you know, having been a professional programmer for a decade, I have a decade's worth of experience at writing stuff from scratch, not a decade's worth of tools in my toolbox. And mm -hmm. that seems like a not optimal set of, you know, circumstances here, right? I should be able to go and, you know, uh, copyright attribution allowing, you know, be able to reuse stuff and, you know, take stuff that was part of an overall set of operations I was doing and be able to sort of pull this up, right? And so a really important aspect of that is saying, you know, each of these steps needs to be like a functional transform on data, because yeah. if we have that, then we can take any subset of that and uh, just kind of lift it up and say, this is a function now, this is reusable, right? And you, I think, need to have some sort of type system there. So it's a little bit more explicit about what shape of data it needs. It needs to be a lot more concrete than, you know, what the, the bash environment gives you, which is like, it's text, you know, and... Yeah. But like there, there's stuff to learn there. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of waving my hands very wildly here because the original plan was to work on the book for three to four months and then spend the, re the remainder of 2017 building a prototype. And it turns out that 2017 was all about the book. And so uh, <laughs> now 2018 is all about writing the prototype. And so uh, what I hope to have by the middle of the year is um, like some very rough kind of, you know, screencasts I can do that are sort of like proofs of concepts and everything like that. And by year's end, have something which resembles what I'm describing here such that I could, I don't know, do a Kickstarter or something and sell it as like a, a developer tool. Okay. And so a few people have asked um, like why I'm doing like open source stuff where I'm writing a whole bunch of immutable data structures 
under a uh, GitHub organization called Lacuna. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also something there that does a bunch of like geometric primitives and stuff like that. Uh, that's all little like scaffolding that I'm building up or, or foundational stuff for this tool. Okay. Uh, because you need to have something which is a series of sort of pure transforms over data. You need to have good uh, immutable data structures. And because it needs to be uh, have like sort of geometric primitives, you need to have that. And I'm I'm writing the entire thing in OpenGL because, mm. uh, well, uh, that's, that's just me kind of because I like OpenGL. And uh, is it something similar to I recently saw a link about uh, software called Luna or something? Uh, it's so so yeah so there's a there's just not not dissimilar conceptual yeah i mean so what luna says is um it turns out that basically you can treat any pure data structure or any pure uh sort of set of computations as like this sort of dag data flow right so like you have the tree which is like the sort of normal expressions and then if you have a let binding then you can go and you define it and then it kind of gets as an inward edge sort of elsewhere and so you have a dag and um, what they have is they say, okay, you can write code or you can build out the DAG. And then like, there's sort of this isomorphism between the two, such that, you know, what changes in one affect the other. Yeah. Um, this is sort of speaking more to sort of a, a bit of fussiness that I have, but one of the things that um, all these tools have, and this is something that I've been struggling with a lot uh, in terms of finding prior art that I feel like I can build upon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole class of tools that do like uh, visual effects or sound effects. There's something called Max MSP. There are other sorts of yeah, things yeah. that allow yeah. you to go and say, I have a node. This node represents a transform over like graphics or sound, and I'm going to drag wires in between them because mm-hmm. I feel like that allows people who do not think of themselves as programmers to not be scared of the programming that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the problem with this approach where people are like literally dragging wires in between stuff and rearranging nodes using their mouse is that it turns into a mess. And uh, people spend a lot of time going and trying to like group stuff and everything like that. And it's, it's awful, right? It's an awful way to go and do this. And so the, the way that I've described this as like what I'm, I'm looking for, and I don't know precisely what this looks like yet, is I want Peredit for DAG mm-hmm. editing, right? Okay. Because yeah. what Peredit gives you is this structural editing where you're not fussing with like the individual parentheses or trying to kind of like, you know, get everything just so. What you're saying is this is now connected to this, or this is now outside of this or anything. And, and these are just simple mechanical transformations where, you know, it doesn't require you to go and be fussy about where everything is laid out with respect to each other. Mm-hmm. And the Luna thing I was very excited about, but then you see when you watch the video, that, you know, someone goes and makes a note and they kind of drag it out. And I'm like, yeah. but, but why, right? Like, <laughs> well, who's asking for this, right? Yeah. And, and I think that that's, that's fine, and I, I that that's probably you know uh, that is not a a substantive uh, critique of the Luna thing, yeah, but they're yeah. also kind of going in a, in a bunch of different directions, and they they want to go and kind of make it as a general purpose programming environment, which is not what I want. I want mine to be sort of more yeah. That, that seems that seems so. a bit more like a stretch goal, right? I mean, making these kind of tools very generic enough is that that makes them. I don't know. I mean, for for a given scope, they they look really nice. For example, if you're building uh, like like a domain specific languages like VHDL or VLSI programming sort of stuff. You know they they have they have these primitives that 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 you can use and they have these um, even the CAT tools that you use. Uh, they have very specific set of uh, goals. The very moment you stretch the scope, then these things become 
I don't know, super messy. I mean, well, that's the thing is that like, so, you know, this is also something that like I've, I've kind of am alluding to in the book, which mm -hmm. is like, I'm trying to come up with these diagrams where I talk about, oh, we have interfaces and we have these things. But like, if you've ever like used a, uh, data, like a code dependency visualization tool, like they come up with this like weird, like bird's nest of like, you know, lines between things and it makes yeah. nothing clear. Right. Yeah. And I think that for certain things that you're doing where there is this kind of very clear linear chain of like, I'm trying to get from here to here. I'm trying to turn data from this shape into this shape. And you're not doing this like complex orchestration. You're not trying to write general purpose software. You're not trying to write like a UI or something like that. That has like a lot of these sorts of things that are tied together or all kind of fan in and fan out from a central point of control. Hmm. Uh, then I think that that works. But I think that the moment that you say this is superior to text or like at least a good, uh, uh, sibling to text as a yeah. general purpose way to understand our code. I, I don't believe it. Um, yeah. And that's not to say that like uh, these tools can't be useful, but I think that, you know, a lot of them are claiming to do a lot more than they can reasonably uh, expect to. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that, I, I don't know what the Luna tool is like what its funding is or like whether it's an academic sort of project or commercial yeah. or whatever, yeah. but a lot of the other tools that I've looked at have been commercial, have been venture funded. And the problem with venture funding is that like, if you're going to go and try to solve one problem, you're going to try to solve them all because that's, <laughs> that's what you need to tell them. You're just like, you need to find a path to being a billion dollar business and, and then put blockchain in it. Oh, right. Or something, right. Just come up with whatever <laughs> the, the sort of buzzword du jour is. Yeah. And I think that, a uh, fairly unfortunate uh, casualty of this was uh, Lighttable. Um, yeah. Lighttable, I think, was a really good medium-sized idea, right? It had some mm. good incremental improvements to uh, how to do text editing, how to do development. Uh, but they took uh, like a million dollars in funding from Andreessen Horowitz and like that was it, right? Because you can't go to Andreessen Horowitz and say, we have a moderately better text editor. Uh, <laughs> so now like, oh, well, we're making a, a better spreadsheet. Right. And like, yeah. I don't know if they're going to succeed, like fingers crossed. Um, yeah. Like they're, they're all, you know, very smart and dedicated people, but mm. like, that's a go big or go home kind of outcome. And I think that like, frankly, the, the state of development tools is poorer for the venture capital kind of ecosystem mm. that mm. surrounds it because uh, there are very few things that we can do with software that will be these sorts of home run wins where it just kind of mm. transforms how everybody uh, does software like the the way that you go and you create better tools is by identifying a narrow scope of a problem you're trying to solve and building a tool which is purpose built to that problem. Do do you mm. um I mean I guess you have watched the Brett Victor stuff. Um, why wouldn't you have? Um, so I have this theory that that you know he goes back to Doug Engelbert all the time and to Alan Kay and all these kind of guys. And, and he's done some stuff with his feedback loop between the visual and, and, and the text. And he's done some stuff about, oh, you know, stop drawing dead fishes. And, you know, there's a lot of these nice things. But, and now he's with this dynamic land. But, but I, I don't know why, but I have this suspicion, and maybe you can say I'm wrong, but I, I think he's just catfishing the whole industry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think he's. I think he's actually been pretty upfront about this. I think a lot of people have, have like watched one or two of his talks and then been like, "Oh, he has like a new idiom for programming, right?" <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and like that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, here is a type of interaction that I think that we should be aspiring to. 
And the thing that was interesting about Lighttable, which, you know, frankly, it didn't achieve, right? But what it, what it was was something that was saying, you know, that thing that Brett Victor hypothesized should exist, we did it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so I think that that was very exciting, like legitimately exciting. I paid money for the Kickstarter because I, I wanted to see what was going to happen there. And the fact that it didn't quite achieve it is fine. Like I that that wasn't like a disappointment to me. But I think that like when Brett Victor says like it's not that he's coming up with something which is like a better way to design circuits or a better way to animate fish or like what have no. you. <laughs> like he's just saying here is a type of interaction that we should be aspiring to. It worries me a little bit though that. Uh, the reason why I call it catfishing is because of this discussion we've had, which is, yeah, that's a nice aspiration, but are we ever going to have a tool like that? You know, it is, is or it, or maybe we'll have a hundred tools like that. You know, that 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 do something for circuits or do something for for particular types of drawings. Is that what we're trying to get around to? Do you think? I mean, I don't know. So uh, a friend of mine recently shared a quote with me, which I liked, which I think was Oscar Wilde. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, any map which doesn't uh, contain uh, utopia is not a worthwhile map. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Because that's what like gives us something to kind of aspire to. And progress comes from reaching for that sort of utopia. And so people like Brett Victor are important. I think he's, he's uh, clearly a brilliant guy. I think that he's doing a good service by making people imagine a better future. Um, I think that the fact that people sometimes think that he's the messenger of a better future, as opposed to just kind of like sketching it out is yeah. not his fault. It's theirs. But like, that is, that is something where uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't mind that. I don't mind going and waving your hands. I think I do mind the fact that uh, the only people who get funding are people who are trying to realize that utopia as opposed to people who are trying to incrementally sort of move in the direction of it, right? right? Yeah. Like the, the, the whole like kind of I'm going to go and sail out into the ocean and like either I'm going to come back rich or dead <laughs> is like not uh, – that, that's not a sustainable mode of um, – I, I, it's not a sustainable anything really. Like it's, it's a – I think it's it's very – harmful to like every aspect of professional programming but doesn't isn't it just feeding greed over progress well i don't know i mean so you know i so i you know i've i've lived in the bay area more or less my entire life right um and i uh I know people who like work in venture capital like this is something where like it's something that's there and i think that there there is a there there Right. And you can reasonably point to a lot of examples of where people swung for the fences and, you know, actually accomplished that. Yeah. And, you know, you can call it survivorship bias and it is, but that also means that there is a possibility these things can exist. And I think that, um, you know, one of the. What example would you give of that, actually? Because I'm a bit skeptical of it. Okay. I mean, you can go and you can just look at, um, like, I mean, they go back to why they call it Silicon Valley, right? You have, uh, like Fairchild and all the kind of, um, the semiconductor stuff, like semiconductors. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. But and so, so like, and, and there's though? been other sorts of examples. eBay. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, so, and I think that there are other, so I'm, I'm reaching back to the past for a reason, right? A lot of the right. stuff that's going on right now is just people doing sort of arbitrage on this. Um, I do not think that Uber represents like meaningful innovation and this sort of thing. I do not like, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stones that you can throw at this. Right. And, uh, but I mean, you know, 
I think that if you were to go and articulate one of the few like really great aspects of the kind of American culture around business, it's that failure is allowed and encouraged in some cases, right? You know, bankruptcy laws, these other sorts of things are, are extremely lenient in that sort of respect. And it means that people can go and swing for the fences. And if they fail, like, you know, poor them, they go work at, you know, Google or something like that. It's not um, <laughs> like there is an ecosystem that allows people to go and kind of dream big. And, you know, it's a shame when those big dreams are, you know, uh, Uber for, you know, pet shampoo or something like that. But like, it's, I, and, and so, and I don't want to seem like I'm parroting kind of the, the Peter Thiel talking points of like, you know, where are our jetpacks? Because he's like a, you know, vampire who is like, yeah. you know, in, in many, person. many ways, yeah. a, a reprehensible person. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there, there's truth there, right? I mean, people wouldn't be saying that if there wasn't some sort of truth there and people wouldn't be continuing to invest there if there weren't some value. I think the problem is that the, the noise has just overwhelmed the signal to a great degree, uh, like in the present. I think we're getting okay. way off topic now though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think uh, we, we riffed on the entire Silicon about, Valley. Can and, I just and, make a start? I mean, we, 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 at the beginning of this episode, I was going to say something to you actually, because the the episode before this with was with, with Zach Oaks and now we have Zach mm -hmm. Tellerman. So I was asking <laughs> Vijay actually whether or not we're now not allowed to have anyone on a podcast that isn't called Zach. <laughs> because you know are they're gonna change their names. You know? Yeah, I think that <laughs> Well, you know, I mean you should be aware that like it was a very popular name right around when I was born. So just you know, make sure that, you know, you target a bunch of, you know, American dudes who are in their early thirties and yeah. like you'll be golden. Just just I think, stick, I think the gender balance the, is gonna you know, suffer works. Though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but what is the what is the female version of Zach? I mean, is that a female? Oh, there, I don't I think there is one. It's it's a biblical name no? and not all of those have oh. like male and female uh okay. like uh you know equivalents. Oh, okay. I'm not aware of this uh isn't it Zill? <laughs> with, with Zed. Zach and Zill went up the hill. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, so I think we can, we can get back to a bit of closure before we. Uh, wow, it's one hour fifteen minutes. Okay. Um, so, how how did you get into closure? Of course. Yeah. I mean, we we talked about you know post closure era. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us like you know pre closure era and what were your frustrations that you? Uh, that pushed you into closure? Sure, yeah. So um, I went to school for computer science. And uh, for three of the four years that I was at school, I was pretty sure I wanted to work in video games. And uh, after having actually looked at what that was, I realized <laughs> that that was actually not a thing that I wanted to do. Yeah. But I was coming out of school with a focus in uh, graphics and computational geometry. And it's uh, you know, something that I, I still, to this day, you know, really enjoy just as sort of a, a thing. It's, it's, it's a very satisfying thing to make computers uh, show you images that are very, you know, kind of uh, visually uh, stimulating. And uh, the problem though, is that if I didn't want to work in video games, a number of things that like did graphics were pretty limited. And I ended up at a, a company that did video surveillance software um, that was doing like trying to do video analysis and they were coming up with custom UIs to kind of do video playback and, and show search results and stuff like that. And so they were a C sharp shop. They were doing actually a desktop application. And so I got deeper and deeper on like the low level windows graphics routines and stuff like that. And after, a, you know, a number of years of that, I kind of looked up and realized I was going in a direction I didn't 
want to be going in. And so I started looking for uh, a new language. And um, what I did was I, for each new language, I tried to go and write a little OpenGL wrapper in it, which is a terrible way. You yeah. know, kids don't grow up to be me. Like this is, this is a terrible <laughs> criteria to go and like choose a language on. But uh, I, I tried Ruby. Um, I tried OCaml. Um, yeah. I tried, I, I, actually played around with Erlang a little bit, but they didn't have OpenGL binding. So I kind of, you know, uh, tossed that aside. Hmm. And, uh, but then uh, a director of engineering at the company I was at was uh, Tom Fallhaber, who did Closure, Pretty Print, and a few other things. And this was like, you know, way back around the time of 1.0, like maybe a little bit before. And he was very excited by Closure because he was a, you know, old common lisp head and um, he was talking about it a bunch. And so I thought I'd give it a try. And uh, according to like my very rigorous metric of, you know, how quickly can I start getting 3D graphics on the screen, Clojure was far and away the best because I just had to go and take the existing Java bindings and just kind of like poke at them. And so that was the first thing that I did with Clojure was uh, my first ever open source library was called Penumbra, which was an OpenGL wrapper for Clojure which as far as I know, I was the only ever active use user of because I, it was not a very good API. It was extremely uh, like customized to what was sort of fun for me at the time, right? And like tons of macros, all this other sort of stuff because OpenGL is an extremely uh, verbose API and there's yeah. a lot of sort of wasted stuff. And like, oh, I can just like write a macro here and write a macro here and pretty soon it's like, you know, something that only makes sense to me. I even had something that would take closure and translate it into like GLSL shader code. Um, wow. Yeah. And like, of course, the, like it did basic type inference and other stuff, but it, it had a bunch of holes that only I knew, like what sort of code you could and couldn't write. And so like it's on GitHub and I just like have kind of like let it fall aside <laughs> and people are like, hey, you know, should I use this? And I'm like, no, you really should not because <laughs> like it's like, but but that was sort of what got me started. And, and I think that, um, it's a slightly atypical use of closure because it's an extremely imperative API that I was building on top of. It's an extremely imperative use case in general, but it also it allowed me to kind of play around with this stuff. And I I was much more productive in closure to do kind of little toy like uh, graphical demos than I was in C plus plus, hmm. and uh, I just kind of went from there. So. Uh, you know, I ended up leaving uh, that job and going to Google uh, shortly thereafter. And Google, of course, did not have closure. Um, yeah. But um, I was only there for a short period of time before um, a local startup that was doing closure um, asked me if I wanted to join. And I kind of hemmed and hawed for a few months and then I left. Yeah. And I was working full time in closure and, you know, have been uh, with a very few exceptions ever since. So mm-hmm. that's, that's been kind of my story. And I've been fortunate in that um, most of the companies I've worked for have been very happy to have me kind of do some open source work during my day job, Mm. which accounts for sort of the sheer number of libraries I've I've managed to crank out over the years. Um, And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, That's sort of that at a very high level. I remember that. Didn't you do a talk about the the macros that you learned from the composition of the macros was a problem uh, after Penumbra. Yeah, yeah, I've actually done a couple yeah. of a couple of versions of that. So I, I give a very in-depth example of like a graphics for closure in a um, talk called Distilling Java Libraries, which was uh, a ways back. 
and then sort of reprised that material in one that was uh, called Always Be Composing. That's that's one I've seen. But yeah. I, that's yeah, that was good. Yeah, that's a that's a favorite example of mine because I think that um, as long as you're just kind of talking about oh we're going to transform this data into the other data like unless you go and push that data somewhere do something with it like all you're doing is kind of raising the ambient temperature of the room and so <laughs> I, I I think that that's actually a really I mean, it's interesting, right? So like um, we were talking about Haskell and sort of strict type systems. And I think it's telling that Haskell is really good at writing compilers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's because that's a very, basically it doesn't have side effects per se, or like if it does, it's really much at the edges. It's, it's just turning one shape of data into another shape of data. It's also an extremely well-defined problem because you get to say what the inputs and the outputs are. And, you know, if anyone wants to write something that doesn't fit it, you just go and kind of, you know, give them the finger and like give them some sort of, you know, parser error. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, that's a really good fit for the kind of very uh, prescriptive um, kind of approach to that thing. And also to the, you know, the strengths of functional data uh, or functional programming, which is, you know, data shape to another data shape. But I think that, you know, when you really want to start judging, like, is this a good approach overall? You have to talk about, okay, well, now that we have our data, what do we do with it? Right. And sometimes it's literally just uh, sending it over a queue. Sometimes it's like printing it out to the screen. But, you know, for the most part in real production stuff, we're doing something non-trivial with it. And I think that you can't really safely ignore that. And that's also been a focus of a lot of the libraries that I've worked on. Certainly the most popular ones have been like Aleph and Manifold and other stuff, which are like very much about side effects. Right. Mm. And how do you deal with that? And I, I think that that's an important question for, you know, anyone to go and look at. You can't just go and say, oh, we don't talk about that, right? Can I, can I just interrupt you by quickly saying thank you for Aleph, by the way. I think so many people are using that. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, we, we, so many people we talk about, uh, we talk about programming, and Aleph is one of those things which I think, I don't know what the stars are on GitHub are or whatever, but I know that in the Clojure community that you're very uh, treasured for that library because it is superb. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm glad. I mean, I, I think that, like, again, it's one of those things where it came out just as, like, Node.js was coming into Ascendancy. And I think a lot of people are like, oh, event-driven stuff. I, I know I should like that. And so <laughs> I, I, I sometimes question how many people use Aleph because it's the best solution for their problem. How many of them use it because it seems cool? And, like, you know, it, it's it's fine for me either way, I guess. But it's something where, you know, it's it's it, it was very... Uh, Advent, it took advantage of sort of the hype cycle. And I think that that, that accounts for set, at least some of its popularity. Yeah. No, that's just you being modest, I think. Okay, so uh, we just have one uh, before, I think we are almost one and a half hour, but uh, we'd like to know, uh, I mean, your thoughts about spec as, as a conclusive uh, question for this episode. Yeah. Obviously, you need to come back again because we have a lot of material yeah, that you yeah. need to cover. There's not enough time for us, but uh, yeah, yeah. I know we'd like to conclude this episode with uh, this question. Um, I'm taking a wait and see approach. As I said, I think it's the first thing that has been added to the language um, yeah. in the last five years that seems like it might actually change how people use the language. Yeah. Um, but the way that it's been sort of rolled out and a lot of the other sort of stuff around it is a little bit... I mean, it follows us a familiar pattern, but it's still like very frustrating because, you know, the errors that you get out of spec are not good. Yep. And uh, whenever this is brought up, 
uh, someone from Cognitech will quite rightly point out, well, you could write a function that would go and roll that up and give you a better message. And they're not wrong, but it, to, to push such a crucial aspect of the UX of this new feature onto the community is baffling to me. Um, yeah. I, I, I cannot uh, understand why they would go and just leave that as a like exercise for the reader. Um, and, you know, I say that's baffling, but it's also very much in keeping with how they've sort of talked about these things, which is you have these features, which are, you know, powerful, but like they're kind of this core, and then they leave the sort of the remainder of the connective tissue to the outside world as something that people can kind of uh, choose and that gives the freedom of choice. Right. Mm. But I, I think that like, that's sort of a false freedom in many respects. I think that like closure in general would be much stronger if Cognitect had a blessed set of libraries for solving certain problems, because that would yeah. encourage people to go and collaborate on improving the, the tools themselves and the documentation around them and all that other sort of stuff. Um, but like, instead what you get is stuff like tools depths, which is like, you know, oh, well we have two, you know, fairly popular build tools, but we're going to go and build another one, which is like different and, you know, more minimal and like, you know, kind of tickles our aesthetic sensibilities better. And I, I mean, I, I understand the, why they're doing it. I also understand that the fact that it's, you know, being done by Cognitech doesn't mean that like, you know, it comes full formed out of, you know, Rich's head mm -hmm. or something like that. But um, you know, I, I talked about this at the conj in an unsession because mm -hmm. one of the things that I kind of talked about in, in my talk was that I think that like closure has a broad, but shallow pool, um, of tools, like a broad, but shallow ecosystem. And, um, I think that that in some way, uh, comes out of the kind of people who like Lisp languages, right? This yeah. is a curse of the Lisp. And so like to some degree, we're just self-selecting people who like can't help but go and build a like, you know, 12th iteration of a problem which is already solved because we like how our smells, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's also, I think, uh, something that comes from the top in some respect, hmm. uh, in as much as, uh, no one is willing to kind of just come in and say, like, if you don't have a really good reason to do uh, this differently, just do it this way. Yeah. And those defaults matter. They make uh, they are something that absolutely would help the community grow because it would allow people who are coming in to accomplish something. Right. Not mm -hmm. just kind of go and sort of uh, float in the you know void with all the little orbs around them, wondering like what it is that they're supposed to do with all of them. Like, you know, it actually would allow them to get somewhere. And I think that the mean time to accomplishing something substantive in a language is an enormous predictor of whether or not people stick around. Yeah. And, you know, I was fortunate in that, you know, my completely bizarre <laughs> criteria for, for selecting a language did actually get me somewhere quickly, right? And so I, I, I actually sort of built on that that initial success. And I, what I think that we're not talking about outside of maybe the closure script ecosystem, where I think that there's a there's a stronger story for some of this stuff. But I'm I'm not a front end developer, so I, this is sort of all secondhand. Like there's not a conversation of if we want people to feel great, if they want to feel powerful using closure. What is the what is the like ten starter projects that they can kind of work on that will make them feel really yeah. awesome, mm -hmm. right? What is the 15 minute yeah. blog, which, you know, was a, a total lie in many ways, but was a brilliant bit of marketing by DHH, right? The 15 minute blog yeah. was yeah. exactly what people wanted. They wanted to go exactly. and take something that seemed hard 
and complex and time consuming and, you know, made them feel like they could basically be a superhero. Yeah. And, and so the, you know, the question was originally about spec, but like, I think that spec. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 of course, I mean, it's not just, uh, I think you're, you're touching based on spec, how, um, how, how it relates to the other eco, other parts of the ecosystem yeah, as but well. also you the, 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 you're the, making a point which is yeah. which is kind of crazy really uh, that the number one complaint from every single closure survey is error messages we always it, it, this is this is from closure programmers that have bitten the, they've taken the yeah. pill you know mm-hmm. we, we we're in there we're doing it we're already you know we, we're already converted and we still don't like the error messages. <laughs> so, so yeah. and it's the one thing which is you know it's a it's a big stick to beat closure with you know if if, if you go you know we've got to meetups and stuff like that um it's so annoying when the sack traces come up or you you know like you say you get a spec error and it's just it's just a mile of text um yeah and i, I mean it's it's good scaffolding for better messages yeah, they, maybe, they but, are yeah. they are mm-hmm. correct that oh there's a function here you can transform it blah 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 well, just do that then. You know, it doesn't yeah. have to be perfect, but do something which is just nicer. Put a bit of effort right. into and, it. And I think that I think that there's also something that uh, I suspect here. So, you know, back when Schema first came out, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I was also working on something that was sort of similar in that vein because, you know, data shape validation was important, clearly. Mm-hmm. I The first startup that I worked at, uh, Runa, had enormous issues because it was just going and like uh, using like printed closure data structures in a database, and there was no validation <laughs> or anything. It was it was a goddamn yeah. nightmare. Yeah. Um, and so like it, there's clearly a need for this, um, but the thing that I got stuck on was how do you give good error messages? And like one of the problems was like if you go and just put some sort of bare predicate in there, which inevitably you have to, right? There's no way that you can go and you can like avoid that. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that roll back up and how does that actually get explained as anything other than here's like a printed version of a closure, uh, you know, function um, that failed for some reason. Right. Yeah. And I think that the conclusion I came to uh, though, I never really quite figured out exactly what that would look like is that you had to go. And when you specified a predicate, you also had to specify some sort of generator for an error message, like some Mm -hmm. sort of explanation of what this failing looks like. Such yeah. that these sort of things are in lockstep because just having the validation uh, doesn't really give us enough information, right? Unless you were actually able to pick apart the function and somehow infer what it was checking. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, and there's some stuff you could do there, but I, I think that at the end of the day, um, you just need to go and force the person who's doing the validation to also explain it programmatically. Yep. And the problem with spec is that it doesn't do that, right? It has these really nice combinators for building validators. Mm-hmm. And those combinators are not like giving people the ability to go and describe in plain English or, you know, just in any sort of natural language, like what is it that you are uh, trying to validate here? And since spec hasn't built that in, I suspect that the error messages will always be a little bit opaque unless you're sticking to the blessed set of validators that it can go and like come up with some sort of explanation for. And that's not great. Yeah. Um, And that's sort of why, you know, I, I buy that this can create better error messages. I buy that, you know, um, it's nice to have some sort of explanation where it's not just like the prologue. No period. (laughs) Like, you know, at the end of the sort of thing, right? Like, yes, we can aspire to something better than that. 
Yeah. But um, the uh, the problem here is that I think that it's a clever technical solution to a fundamentally human problem. And I think mm. that that describes a lot of what the closure core language has to offer. And in some cases, those technical solutions are valid, like uh, kind of ways of dealing with the human problem, like immutability is a great example of that. Yeah. But um, I, I don't think that that's a hammer that you can just kind of swing around and, you know, always fix the problem with. And, you know, one of the things I alluded to at the conj was that, you know, it's, it's something where, you know, the community could step up here. Right, because it's clear that Cognitech is waiting for the community to step up. Hmm. And so, you know, if we want to have a blessed set of stuff, like maybe people just need to get together and do this. And I know that there is a closure together, I think, if yeah, I'm yeah. remembering yeah. this yeah. Uh, thing, which I think is an excellent step in that direction. Um, hmm. And, you know, I, I've been sort of talking a big game about this because I, it's clear that it needs to happen. I also don't know that I want to be the one pushing it forward because I've kind of got enough on my plate. <laughs> so I keep on kind of like talking about it and hoping that someone else will do it, which makes me really no better than Cognitech. But like, um, it's something which I uh, I think that if we were to talk about like what is holding closure back, mm. and I think that it's clear that you know uh, even if the community is growing, it's not growing at quite the same rate. Like it's no longer you know the prettiest language at the bar. You know yeah. people are not just going <laughs> and like you know Jumping picking up on. closure because like yeah. Paul Graham told them to. Like you know that that sort of moment has passed. Yeah. And, you know, Clojure benefited a lot from being at the right place at the right time. And it's no longer there. It's, now it's actually being judged more mm. on its merits than on its potential. Mm. And uh, I think that uh, people are still assuming that everyone who's coming to the language is willing to put up with a lot of crap, basically. Yeah. And yeah. that's not true. Yeah. Um, or at least not as true as it has to be for, like, the community to still grow in spite of this. And so I don't know what the solution looks like, I, but I do think that um, I know a lot of people who got very frustrated with Cognitech because they were waiting for Cognitech to come in and like come like uh, come down from the mountain with yeah. like the solution on the stone tablets, and it's <laughs> clear now that that's not going to happen, um, at least not in a sort of like you know uh, near term time frame. Mm -hmm. And so it falls to the community if we want this to happen, we have to do it, and um, that's fine. Um, and I think that that's uh, a reasonable thing. I think it's frustrating that Cognitech has, you know, certainly intimated this but never said it out loud. Yeah. Um, and I would like to, I think, um, you know, see more community stewardship, like people actually just going and saying, like, the, the time for waiting is over, like, we have to just go and kind of do this. And, you know, frankly, whoever is willing to come up to the table and just say, this is what the community should use, like, that's fine, right? Like, um, I think that the one real example of this in the community has been Ring. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think that Mark McGranahan made a series of good choices. I think that James Reeves has, you know, yeah. uh, sort of carried that torch forward very ably. Yeah. And um, no one questions that, right? There's, yeah. there's no, you know, uh, official kind of... Uh, you know, support of that is just what the community has done. And the fact that that is the one standout example uh, should be seen as a problem, right? There should be a lot more <laughs> of that true. in a much wider variety of cases as opposed to, you know, 13 different solutions to what is fundamentally an unimportant problem. But it is it is changing now, right? I mean, I, I think it is, it is as you said, I mean, closure is not um, like the, the 
most beautiful language that you're going to jump into and then think that potentially it's going to be an amazing language so now 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 think have changed i think hopefully more and more people will will um, get into this and then see the warts and try to fix them as quickly as possible i, I hope think so. the things I, are, yeah and i think that yeah. if there is a clear uh place that will go and welcome them and yeah, and tell yeah. them what they can work on and you know not go and close all the github pull requests by saying you know please sign the ca <laughs> we don't take documentation changes like please fill out a jira ticket exactly. like you know something which actually goes and says you know we we value your work we are not going to go and set up a bunch of hurdles for you to go through yeah. is um is going to be good right because yeah, yeah. the people who they're like there's a reason that closure moves slowly because mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff in closure is load bearing and you don't want to change it uh quickly or without a lot of careful thought yeah. uh but there's a lot of other aspects of the ecosystem that don't share that property and we should have mm -hmm. a different process and i think it has to be a community driven one to yeah. go and adopt changes so I don't know. Like we we've talked forever, so we should probably yeah, just cut yeah. all this. But um, <laughs> uh, but this 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 comes up in practically every episode. So I don't, you know, to, to leave on a more a slightly more optimistic note, though, is uh, you know I take your point about the popularity, but although for me I still think I look at closure and I still think from an expressive point of view, it is still quite a beautiful language, and I don't see a better language out there. Actually, you know, I look around and I look at you know uh, Elm and I look at Rust and I don't know. It seems like, you know, even maybe Elixir is something which people are uh, maybe looking at, but I still, yeah, it still doesn't seem quite as beautiful as, as the Lisps to me. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be running a book. Like, I mean, you know, I'm being negative. Like I'm, I'm, you know, mad because I care. Right. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I came into closure very early and it did not seem clear to me like what was going to be the kind of ceiling here. Like there is a ceiling. The parentheses mean that there is a ceiling to the adoption that we're going to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's just something that is like a, a given, but I, I think that it doesn't have to be where it is right now. And it doesn't have to be where it is like at this current sort of trajectory of growth. And so, you know, the people who are here and who are passionate are, uh, you know, they have to be sort of the ones that push us forward, right? Sort of make it succeed in spite of itself. Yeah. And I think that that's what it is. And so, yeah, I, I certainly don't mean to go and say like, you know, uh, once I'm done with the book, like I'm out. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, it's uh, it's something where, you know, this has been the one language that I've really, you know, fell in love with and have been with since, you know, it was quite young and uh have sort of seen how the community has changed and how the expectations of the community have changed and everything like this. And I think that all I'm saying is that uh, there's room for improvement and for clearer lines of communications and clearer articulations of who expects what from whom. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and I think that that's just something which you know uh, I feel very viscerally that this is sort of something that needs to kind of get resolved. And I'm I'm happy to see that there is progress in this direction, but you know uh, we could do with ten times more. Yeah. So, on that bombshell, <laughs> <laughs> things can only get better. Bombshell. <laughs> exactly. We we'll try to conclude the episode. Obviously, I mean, uh, thanks a lot, Zach, for your for your time and uh, showing up on the podcast and and being our uh, you know first guest for the live streaming. There are at least 21 people watching this and thank you for watching the, the video. I'm not sure how, how this is exactly going uh, right now because I'm not watching the video myself. Um, but uh, please uh, give us your feedback. And a couple of uh, uh, things that, that we want to cover is that uh, there, there is a, a Dutch closure day that we are organizing in Amsterdam, March 21st, um, April 21st, sorry. 
So uh, the call for proposals is open. Uh, so please go and check it out. And if you want to talk about anything, uh, go ahead. And uh, we have amazing sponsors all the way from Switzerland and Finland and, and uh, everywhere. We've been tweeting about it a lot and uh, we'll be there. And I think Ray will be there as well. Uh, and we'll also show up at Closure D in Berlin uh, to annoy you guys there with our jokes and our other random stuff. Uh, something about Onyx. Uh, we'll see. Um, and that's it from us for this week, I think, and our first ever episode on live uh, thing. So if this works out, I think we'll try to do this more. And and Zach, uh, we would love to have you back again because we have so many other topics to cover. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, let's just say like once I have, you know, some sort of little demo to show here, I'm happy to talk more about that and kind of Perfect. all that stuff. And of course, once the book is actually done and once, yeah. you know, the draft has been out there and people have been able to read it, um, yeah. you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to, you know, if there's any sort of, you know, set of reader questions, I can go and just kind of, you know, talk at length about all this stuff. That'd so be, in any case, amazing. yeah, uh, thanks yeah. for having me on here and, uh, you know, have a great day, you guys. Yeah, Fantastic. thank you. Thanks, Zach. Before we go, I just quickly say thanks to um, to Pizzeri, who does the music, and to um, Lubov, who does the graphic design for us. Uh, I think um, she's actually doing some uh, awesome stuff for other people in the Closure community now as well, which is good to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so thanks to all you guys. Thanks also to Wouter for doing the sound, and um, hopefully he'll be able to clean up the mess that we've made on the YouTubes today. <laughs> uh, thanks also to the good folks sponsoring us via Patreon. Um, we're now in double figures, and... It's it's really a great and humbling feeling to know that some of you are able to contribute so that we can keep our personal costs down. And also, it keeps us motivated to keep taking Defn forward. We, we really love the idea that the community is coming together for closure. So just to finish off uh, thanking you again, Zach, uh, really appreciate the time that you've um, spared for us. Um, honestly, been a very interesting discussion, very open, as we expected, you know, a very uh, straight face, straight eyed, uh, very open, very clear. So thank you very much for that. And, and again, thank you very much for all of the, the contributions and the software and the books that you've put out there and the talk. So you're a pillar of the, a pillar of the community. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Cool. Well, yeah, uh, like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to be here and I'm, I'm certainly happy to see the stuff used because the only way I've ever been able to learn is to put stuff out in front of people and, you know, uh, out of sheer terror that I'm going to look like a, a ignorant jerk, like work really hard to kind of, you know, make it make sense. So, uh, you know, this, this is this is a little bit more off the cuff than I'm used to, but it was a lot of fun. So thank you. Awesome. Cheers. Thank you. He's actually gone.